0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: It was then that I understood that um, this is not a matter of partisanship or the party in power, but a matter of a system, and that system is vicious, rapacious, unregulated, growth maniac capitalism. And that, I concluded, is the main threat to our public lands, the capitalist system, which sees in land only a mere utilitarian resource, a value only for exploitation and use rather than something that has intrinsic value.
2: When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris.
0: And I'm Lindsay Stern.
2: For the past 10 years, investigative journalist Christopher Ketchum has documented the battles being waged over the fate of the federal public lands in the American West. Ketchum has extensively roamed this landscape of deep canyons, 10,000-foot plateaus, sagebrush seas, mountains, deserts, and forests, places of beauty and wildness, he writes, where no one person or institution or corporation is supposed to be privileged above the other. This land, as Woody Guthrie once sang, belongs to you and me. It belongs to every citizen of the United States. But today, Ketchum says in his new book, The government agencies entrusted to oversee it are failing us. The private interests that want the land for profit have planted their teeth in the government. The national trend is against the preservation of the commons. Huge stretches are effectively privatized, public in name only. I went west to see what we were losing as a people.
0: The national commons that Ketchum focuses on are managed on the public's behalf and with our tax dollars by the U.S. Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service some 450 million acres stretching across 12 western states. Both agencies operate with a multiple-use mandate. This means they are required to strike a balance between using the land for purposes that generate economic profit, such as mineral extraction, energy development, and livestock grazing, while also protecting the health of the ecosystem. But today our public lands, and the wild animals and plants that depend on them, are being pillaged, poisoned, and assaulted by industries and government agencies that are captured by them, according to Ketchum. Multiple use, he says, is now multiple abuse. The result, he writes, quote, is ecological impoverishment, biotic simplification, and a widespread collapse of biodiversity.
2: Outside magazine called Ketchum's fierce new book, This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West, quote, the desert solitaire of our time. The New Yorker deemed it an encyclopedic expose. In this land, Ketchum documents the confluence of commercial exploitation and government misconduct in public lands across the West. The role of the livestock and energy industries in their despoilation, and the impact of rampant malfeasance by the federal land management agencies on wildlife. Ketchum has been a freelance journalist for more than 20 years, publishing in Harper's, National Geographic, Mother Jones, and other publications. This land is his first book. Chris Ketchum, welcome to When We Talk About Animals.
1: Good to be here.
0: So how did you come to focus on the western public lands?
1: Well, I, I just I ended up out west doing a lot of camping and backpacking and wandering and um and was impressed particularly by the simple fact that it was all my land and your land and everyone's land and you you could camp anywhere. Now being from back east, where so much of the land is privatized, that is certainly not the case. So, seeing this incredible public domain, this vast commons, um, and feeling it as uh, as my own property, if you will, um, I was pretty sickened as I began to learn about how it is being mismanaged by the very agencies tasked with um, protecting it for the public interest. You mentioned the two main agencies earlier in your introduction. Um, It's the Bureau of Land Management and the United States Forest Service, which together manage something like 600 million acres or thereabouts, most of it in the American West. And um, it's these two agencies that I... Uh, that I really target in the book simply because they exemplify the extent of regulatory capture in our land management agencies. And again, you referred to that as well in your, in your uh, introduction, Um, regulatory capture being the process by which agencies that are supposed to be regulating industry become the creatures of those very industries and become prostituted, to um, business interests. And so, seeing this, being at once ashamed and aggrieved and outraged, I decided, hey, I gotta start writing about it, which, you know, I wrote, a, there are numerous chapters in this book that began as magazine pieces published, you know, in National Geographic and Harper's and Rolling Stone, uh, Discover Magazine and the like. And, um, As time went on, and I continued to see these abuses that continued regardless of administration. That is, these were abuses that were evident under Bush. They were evident under Clinton prior to Bush. They were evident under Obama and continued under Trump. Um, It was then that I understood that um, this is not a matter of partisanship or the party in power but a matter of a system, and that system is vicious, rapacious, unregulated, growth maniac capitalism. And that, I concluded, is the main threat to our public lands, the capitalist system, which sees in land only a mere utilitarian resource, a value only for exploitation and use, rather than something that has intrinsic value.
0: So how did these lands come to be public in the first place? What protected them?
1: Aridity, climatic aridity. Basically, there's so much of the West that was uninhabitable due to lack of rainfall. And so when homesteading was all the rage throughout the 19th century after the passage of the 1862, I think it's 1862 Homestead Act, there were millions of people looking for land. But guess what? It wasn't land that could be farmed. It wasn't arable. There was not, as I said, enough rain, and so the lands basically uh, were never settled and fell into the public domain after a period of um, of laying essentially abandoned. Um, so in 1934, basically, well, let's go back to the Forest Service. So the Forest Service gets founded in 1905. Um, Prior to the forest service in the 1890s, you have the establishment of the, what were called forest reserves. And those forest reserves were the first codification of of, um, public lands in the West. Um, And well, prior to that, hold on, prior to that there's the establishment of Yellowstone National Park, Um, but on a much broader scale, the forest reserves created a public land system. Uh, what remained unprotected were the vast uh, grazing lands that um, in the, um, that by 1934 had been so abused that um, Congress passed the Taylor Grazing Act, establishing the U.S. Grazing Service. And the U.S. Grazing Service basically was designed to steward those uh, lands that had been so abused by, uh, by the cattle industry. And that Signal the beginning of the movement of these lands into um, into purely public hands that is they would no longer be quote unquote disposed uh, into the private sector into and, and privatized and homesteaded they would become the um, the um, they would become the Commons owned collectively by the American people in perpetuity. <laughs>
2: And you write in the book, Chris, that everything that you thought you knew as an Easterner come West about cattle out West turned out to be wrong. And a lot of the book is devoted to the problem of cows and why they're there and the corruption behind the livestock industry and the subsidies that these cattlemen are receiving from farmers. Can you explain what the problem is with cows on this land and how they came to be?
1: Well, the cattle industry gets its start after the end of the Civil War, with um, the uh, ending of the embargo on the Texas cattle industry, Texas being a part of the Confederacy, um, and um, so Texas open the Texas open range cattle industry had been operating for decades already, but um, on the plains and in much of the uh, intermountain west. There was still the quote-unquote problem of the Native Americans, the rest of tribes who refused to um, refused to go uh, quietly into that good night. And so after the war, you had the Army of the West, the railroads coming in, the Army of the West wipes out the Indian. The uh, railroads come in and create a, um, a uh, efficient means of transport for beef to be moved back east. Um, the bison are wiped out. So the main competitor for forage uh, facing the cattle industry is gone. And so you have basically a massive takeover of the West by cattle after 1870 and accelerating through the 1880s into the 1890s. And by 1900, you have a devastated landscape. You have a landscape that has been altered irrevocably because of um, an invasive species that is not meant to be grazing on arid landscapes. So much of the West evolved um, ecologically without the kind of grazing pressure from large uh, Um that cannot, the same cannot be said for the great plains where you had bison, but bison are fundamentally different in their grazing habits. So you, you, you can't compare bison to cattle. Um, so the, the arid lands are just not adapted to deal with, um, with cows. And so when you put a cow out into these landscapes, these fragile, dry landscapes, you, um, you trample the flora, you, you, um, the cows, uh, prefer succulents in terms of the plant life. And so they, they just eat away all the most, the richest, most succulent plants. Um, and then, with them, on their hooves comes uh, invasive species, seeds carried in, like um, cheatgrass, for example, bro- otherwise known as Bromus tectorum, which is an evil species uh, in terms of how it spreads across the landscape and, and uh, outcompetes native vegetation and chokes out the natives so as to create effectively an uh, um, ecologically simplified system. Um, so your cattle are just bad all around for the West. I mean, would be better. We should better graze them on the Washington Mall or something, or you know, the White House lawn, <laughs> um, because they they would they fare far better in the East than they do in the West.
0: And you write in the book about how the cow is actually the oldest measure of wealth in the West. That the word capital derives from the Latin capita, which means the head of capital. And it even haunts this word of ours, fee, which comes from the old English word that meant cattle or property. I just kind of had learned as a result of of your book kind of how systemic the idea of cows as money mm. is to how we think about the role of our species on land.
1: Well, we regard animals as property <laughs> for the most part. Um, and we, we fear, we mostly fear wild animals. Animals, for the simple reason that they can't be controlled, they are not domesticated, right? And, um, uh, you know, I write about the Mustangs of the West, the wild horses of Nevada, and how you know the very word Mustango means ownerless beast, a, an animal that is the property of no one. Um, so yeah, look, viewing land as property. You know, viewing land as property, um, uh, it strikes me that there is an analogy to be made in in how we viewed humans as property. And um, in when we viewed humans as property, we could do with them whatever we wished. We could rape them. We could kill them. We could torture them. And uh, without repercussion whatsoever. So... We view land the same way as property, and we can rape it, we can torture it, we can abuse it, beat it, burn it, break it, and exploit it without consequence or repercussion socially. Uh, So maybe one day we will advance our ethics to include a land ethics, such as Aldo Leopold described, uh, and that land ethics would extend to land and the biota that depend on the land, the same kind of rights we now extend to the one chosen, holy, god-like species, Homo sapiens.
0: You introduce us in the book to a series of fascinating and vividly rendered characters, including William Kittredge, characters who've grappled with this question and some of whom have... Defected from what you call sort of the rancher mentality. Kittredge, I think you'd you'd read his memoirs. He'd grown up as a rancher. Then he'd published a provocative memoir distancing himself from the attitude toward animals that that lifestyle he felt promoted. And there's this amazing line that you quote from your conversation with him um, where you're asking him about something his grandfather used to do where he'd basically trap these...
1: Magpies. Magpies. Beautiful birds. Magpies, right. He would trap them along cages along a road, and then his big Cadillac or whatever it was would drive up and down the road with a shotgun with little, little Billy Kittrich sitting there, nine years old or ten years old, watching, and he would blow away each of the birds with a shotgun in the cages along the road. What a strange and surreal scene that must have been for a nine nine year old to to witness. Um, and hey, wait, let me. Can I read you what Kitchers told me? Yes, please. So I called up. I called up Kitchers because I, I was stunned at that story. And um, so he told me this: My grandfather liked owning lots of land and lots of cattle. He thought of living creatures as his property. And with his property, he gets to do what he damn well wants. The magpie story is illustrative of a guy who never learned anything different. It was the world of the conquest mentality that prevailed all over the West. Yeah, and he goes on. He describes that when he was a little kid. Maybe I'll read that for you, too. He describes when he was a little kid, he would go out with his friends and kill jackrabbits. And he says, when I was 15, I was working on the ranch and I had a bunch of friends come out to work and we used to go out in the Alkali Flats to shoot jackrabbits with 22s. We did it night after night. A bunch of boys gone berserk. The poetry of power. Those jackrabbits were ours, you see? Property. And when you make something property, you've already in your mind taken the life out of it. That's Kitcher. That's it's brilliant, guy. I... I I urge everyone listening to read his memoir of the West, owning it all, because that's what it's all about—owning it all. <laughs> right? That's what cap- and that's what capitalism is about, right? Owning it all—that's that the whole system is about. We are going to own it all. Well, okay.
0: But I think also what's so haunting and brilliant about that line is that it brings out the damage done to the owner. It made me think of the Walt Whitman poem "The Beast," where he talks about the mania humans with their mania of owning things. Mm. How did you, as a journalist, embed yourself in these local cultures?
1: <laughs> I didn't embed myself at all. I was confrontational with them. Uh, you're talking about local ranching cultures, or the the I mean, there there are various cultures that are exposed in the book as being. As being rotten and disgusting. I mean, um, the, the ranching culture, the hunting culture, the trophy hunting culture, cultures in which I didn't, didn't embed myself. I just observed them often at a distance, but often as well, um, close up, uh, in a, in a critical manner. So, you know, the, whether it be the ranching culture or the trophy hunting culture, or the, the, um, the, culture of the fish and wildlife agencies, the state fish and wildlife agencies that um that view wildlife as a crop to be sold to uh hunters, to be managed, um as as you would manage crops. Um, you know, these are all cultures that I consider loathsome. And um, you know, you have you have journalists who are perhaps more patient, uh, more sympathetic, more empathetic than I such as the guy um uh, Anthony McCann I think his name is who wrote a book called shadowlands where he spent all this time with like the Bundys the Clive and Bundy clan who are notorious for having uh, resisted the BLM over ranching privileges in the public lands and um, you know I spent time with the Bundys after an hour I couldn't stand it <laughs> talk about being embedded I wanted to I wanted to get out of there and take a shower. So, um, yeah, I I mean, so, so, but I, I, what what I, the real interest for me in writing the book was to discover the biotic complexity of the land and unveil the threats to that complexity. Because I think it is the complexity of the land that is the most important thing. And if we preserve that complexity, the the land as a, as a living thing, as, as an expression of Gaia, will have a chance at survival into this very grim future of climate catastrophe that we are facing.
2: And you've said in past interviews and you write in the book that you think that one of the hopes for this could be the Endangered Species Act because it specifically targets habitat level protections rather than just one animal or one type of animal or one type of plant or and so forth. Can you speak to that?
1: absolutely yeah the endangered species act if it was fully funded and enforced would wreak such havoc on industry on the public lands that it would it would probably be repealed by a congress that as you and i and all our listeners know is corrupted and captured as well by industry as it stands the esa is not fully funded and fully enforced you have um, endangered species protections that are put in place that are not sufficient to actually protect the animal in question nor the landscapes on which these animals depend but the beauty of the endangered species act and why it is so radical and so powerful if it was to be used with its teeth fully bared right um, is that indeed it does mandate that for the survival of an endangered species you need to protect the vast landscapes that um, in which that species moves. So, for example, grizzly bears. Grizzly bears need lots of land and lots of space. Or the the infamous case of the greater sage is a ground nesting bird endemic only to the to the sagebrush seas of the of the west. Well, the the greater sage grass requires uh, upland habitat, riparian habitat, uh, sagebrush habitat grassland habitat. So, you know, these are an enormous range of landscapes that would need to be protected to protect the greater sage grass. Well, what happened with the greater sage grass? The Obama administration compromised with the oil and gas, with oil and gas interests and livestock interests to create a plan that was a sham, That um, that would not in the end protect these birds from uh, near-term extinction, but only create the veneer of protection so that the public will be mollified. Um, And this is what goes on again and again and again with the Endangered Species Act. And it doesn't matter whether you got a so-called liberal Democrat in office or a right-wing fascist like Trump in office. It doesn't matter. It's the system. The system will not allow laws the powerful laws like the endangered species act to be to be fully applied
2: in the book you devote a substantial section to describing not just this sage grouse example in the obama administration but other examples of what you see as compromises between often the big green environmental groups and industry or in the government, like the one you just described. And what, one thing that's, I think, really remarkable about this book, both both in with regards to this topic, but also what we were just talking about with regards to the sort of delusional cowboy culture myth in America that few journalists are willing to touch, is that you really call a spade a spade um, with, with much ferocity. You have a line in there about if you're taken to lunch, you're being taken to lunch.
1: No, no, no. The line is from David Brower. and And... The the line is Enviros who compromise with the industry think they're they're you know they're they're being taken to lunch. They're just being taken. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what, that's his line. Yeah.
2: That's the line I was remembering. Thank you for the attribution. And I'm wondering what sort of feedback you've received from those groups after they've read this book and seen the scale of your reporting from all of these different stories that you've talked about from, you know, the wildlife services to the cows and to all these other examples put into one narrative. Do you think it's resonated with them?
1: Um, with big greens that depend on corporate financing for their continuing um their continuing survival? Uh, no, I don't think I've gotten some reaction from those folks, and it's been negative because hmm. obviously they want to protect their paychecks. The expected response from them would be negative. Now, I have gotten enormous, enormous positive response from the grassroots green groups, from the activists on the ground, from the the lone ecologists fighting for the good and the true against. Uh, against what, what they call the biostitutes, you know, the biological prostitutes who work for uh, the the BLM and the forest service um, uh, uh, giving their imprimatur of expertise on policies that are execrable and destructive and a violation of science and a violation of ecological duty. Um, So yeah, there's been an upwelling of, of, wonderful people coming out of the woodwork talking about, especially especially people, former retired employees at BLM and Forest Service coming out of the woodwork saying, man, you nailed it. You nailed it. These are We wanted to do the right thing when we were in the Forest Service, when we were in the BLM. We wanted to, but everything connived and conspired against us doing it. And that's really sad, man. When you go in, these are good-hearted people of, 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 Beautiful intention, an intention to protect the land, uh, driven by a love of the land, and then they go into these agencies and they see that it's all corrupt, and they're being and they're being told to foist lies on the public about how protection is being implemented when it's not really protection. Very sad. Very sad.
0: You write about how the BLM has developed a set of terms and practices that. Enable it to engage in what you describe as a kind of double speak, where they're able to appeal to their constituency, which you call their cowboy constituency, while abiding by in this case the the Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act, which protects horses against slaughter and the the um, Mustanging you were describing before where their bodies are ground up as meat for animals in slaughterhouses. Can you just take us through why you see that as the government engaging in, in double speak?
1: Well it's not so much double speak. It's just the nomenclature that bureaucracies use to manage and control wildlife and so they create all sorts of acronyms. So they have HMAs called herd management areas. And in those herd management areas there are quote appropriate management levels or AMLs. And you know, and all and all this again serves to mollify the public who are thinking, wow, they're really doing their jobs. How how competent these bureaucrats are, when in fact what's going on is AML is an arbitrary number, not based in science, not based in ecology, but based in the demands of local cattlemen who do not want to share forage with the wild horses. So the AML is just uh, this number uh, pulled out of the asses of the BLM people to, um, that basically says, all right, we're going to keep this appropriate, this herd management area, this HMA has an AML of 75 horses because that's what the cattlemen told us to say. <laughs> so, you know, and when I see that, I mean, I laugh. I laugh because it's so ridiculous. Uh, it's so offensive, really. Um, it's so offensive to me as a citizen that we are paying our um, we are paying our land managers quite a bit of money to to um, do this, to insult the American people um, with these with these falsehoods, falsehoods such as, we're taking care of the horses and the HMAs and the AMLs are just right. Right. So, I mean, that's another thing that drove this book. It's just the sense of, of, um, of just the disgust with, um, with how our land is being treated and the disgust with the agencies and, and and how they would, they would think that we're just so stupid. You know, the American people are just a bunch of dummies and that would just sit here and take this, you know,
2: the first time I heard your name, Chris, was in reading a piece by you in Harper's Magazine several years ago, which was about USDA Wildlife Services, which you mentioned briefly earlier, and which is a focus in your book as well. And this is very much as you were just explaining how I felt in reading that piece, which was shock and outrage and disgust and horror at how our taxpayer dollars are being, sent, being spent. And for anyone who doesn't know who's listening, will you explain what USDA Wildlife Services is and what they do?
1: Wildlife Services is a, um, basically Wildlife Services was founded in, um, in the late 19th century as the Bureau of Biological Survey. And the Bureau of Biological Survey had for its purpose um, the slaughter of wolves. So Wildlife Services gets its start as the Bureau of Biological Survey. Um Killing wolves at the behest of the ranching industry now um Congress then steps in in nineteen thirty one and passes the animal Damage control act and that establishes um, the a later iteration of wildlife services, which is animal damage control. Now later they change their name to wildlife services for the because it's an Orwellian. And that, you know, wildlife services it sounds wonderful. But what wildlife services does, has done, they've killed tens of millions of animals during the 20th century. Um, Mostly in the American West, mostly to protect the cattle industry. And by tens of millions of animals, I'm talking about wolves, coyotes, sometimes 100,000 coyotes a year are slaughtered by this agency. OK, foxes, black bears, bobcats, cougars, minks, martens, muskrats, skunks, raccoons, crows, ravens, magpies. I mean, it's just an incredible list. Beavers, prairie dogs. Uh, Wildlife Services does this again because it needs to be reiterated solely for the public lands livestock industry to protect that industry against all these creatures that the industry deems to be predators and pests. Um, So this is a mass slaughter across the public lands, Uh, brutal in scale and um, devastating in result that involves widespread poisoning, aerial gunships that fly the day long with a gunner, Uh, hanging out off the skids with a rifle, um, blowing away coyotes. Um, You have cyanide bombs spread out across the public lands. These are known as M44 cyanide traps. And if you trip one, it will explode cyanide into the air and perhaps kill you. There have been several known poisonings of people who have accidentally tripped these devices and hundreds of known poisonings of uh, domesticated dogs who tripped these M44s. You have the illegal use of poisons like thallium, um, I think it's thallium sulfate, which is just a horrific poison that causes agony in wildlife that ingest it. Um, And on and on. Trapper, you've got trappers using... Brutal leg hold traps that just cause agony to the animals trapped in them. Uh, It's really horrible. (laughs) Truly. So that's wildlife services. They'll service your wildlife. That's the joke, right?
0: I want to ask you about... Laura Lay, um, who was one of your sources in the book and who you introduce us to at length. So she was privy to one of these horse roundups where the government would come in and herd um, wild horses into a coral by flying very close to them with helicopters. And at one point, the skid even cut into one of the horses. And um, she was so moved by the site that she ended up suing the government in 2010 and she ultimately won. Can you just tell us about her and what it was like to, to meet her and to learn what she'd done?
1: Yeah. Laura Lee is an incredible person, totally dedicated to saving wild horses from persecution, totally and absolutely dedicated in a way that you rarely see. Um, This is a woman who lives on the financial edge. For years, she was so broke, she was living out of her truck. And she got cancer, and she was living out of her truck, taking chemo treatments while camping. Um, Laura Lee is incredibly tough and brilliant at crafting litigation. Uh, Litigation that... um, More often than not, because she files a lot of lawsuits because the BLM is constantly breaking the law with regard to wild horses, more often than not, she wins her lawsuits because she knows the law and she knows how to argue for the right thing under the law. Um, So, yeah, I got to know Laura really well. We spent a lot of time together just wandering around, going to horse roundups and just wandering around Nevada, just talking, you know. So, yeah, she's a good friend. She's a person who didn't start out a friend and then we instantly became friends in the way that you you recognize a soul brother, a soul sister.
2: Mm. Another friend you make in the book is a woman named Natalie Ertz who ends up taking you – you end up going together and effectively pretending to be part of a wildlife killing contest to see what it's like from the inside. Can you explain and tell us what that experience was like?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, salmon – that was, that was December of 2013. We did that. Yeah. Um, so we went out, we decided to infiltrate a, um, a, um, wolf and coyote killing derby that was organized by a group called Idahoans for Wildlife. And it took place in Salmon, Idaho in the, um, Idaho Rockies, beautiful country.
2: For any listeners who don't know, too, these derbies are designed, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but to kill as many coyotes and wolves or whatever the animal is, coyotes and wolves in this case, as possible in 48 hours. In
1: a 48-hour period, right, right. So it's a race, race to kill. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, we went undercover and, uh, you know, dressed up like like rednecks, got all weaponed up, uh, rifles and pistols and all that. And uh, just tried to get a feel for the, the culture there, um, the killing culture, and understand the view of things there. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll – let me read you a little bit from uh, one of the guys we met. Um, Wonderful. When you go undercover in such a milieu, Salmon Idaho, that is, the trick is to delight in cruelty. At the Lantern Bar in Salmon, an 85 year old World War II veteran named Cal Black explained his method for producing in a wolf the most excruciating death. Gut shoot him, said old Cal as he bought us a round of whiskey. Gut shoot every goddamn last one of them. Now, We go on to ask him, oh, sweet old Cal, um, you know, what, uh, like, what do you, tell us more about gut shots. So Cal said he used armor-piercing ammunition. The heavy-jacketed armor-piercing ammo cuts through the body and comes out the other side, which has two advantages. The first is that, especially if you hit the wolf in the stomach, it tortures the animal. The terrified creature runs a mile or so bleeding out suffering. God knows what kind of pain then lies down whimpers and gives up. So this is the, that's the mentality there at the salmon killing derby. Very strange, very alien to me. Um, but it was, it was important to get to know it and understand it up close.
2: You include in the book near the end a quote by Aldo Leopold, and the quote is this. One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to laymen. An ecologist must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. Mm and it seems and that i was i thought that was an amazing quote but surely i imagine it resonates with you because in a way i think that you could say that you know you've been in the position of that doctor in the course of this reporting to see an illness that's spread across our country that very few people even even people out west and embedded in it have recognized at the scale that you have and i'm sure you can't just go back to normal life <laughs> after you've seen such a thing and so i think readers are are led to ask, and you you lay out a whole bunch of practical things that can be done, from removing cows from the land um, to uh, you know stopping building roads everywhere throughout the West and and so forth, but. Um, but It also leads to the question of what should one do individually after witnessing such a thing as you have over the course of the 10 years of reporting for this book. And I was very fascinated to hear from you earlier that you have a new book that you're working on now, which is on eco-saboteurs and monkey-wrenchers. And I'm wondering if you can talk about both the Edward Abbey book, The Monkey Wrench Gang, and the influence that had on you, but also how this book led to your interest in climate protesters of that type.
1: First off, Aldo Leopold. Yes, the equal, eco- the wounds that your eyes are open to when you when you study ecology. That's incredibly important. I think that people uh, spend a lot of time on landscapes without understanding ecology at all, and only seeing fast food vistas and selfie and you know opportunities for selfies and Instagram posts. You know, um, and those are worthless compared to um, compared to a, a deep biological understanding of what goes on in the soil with the plants, the relations with the animals, the relations with rainfall, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, So Aldo Leopold is incredibly important and everyone should read him. His book is a Sand County Almanac. It's, it's genius. Um, now, as to what we can do once our eyes are open to the wounds, well, um, I do think that it is justified defense of the land to engage in acts of sabotage against industrial infrastructure. And people call this extremist. It's not extremist. You're destroying an inanimate object. <laughs> and these inanimate objects are being wielded by corporations and elites and rich people to kill living things for profit which I think is the extremism. That's the extremism. Um, so, so reading Ed Abbey, you know, Ed Abbey's Monkey Ranch Gang, and for those who don't know the book, it's a great book. It's a comedy, basically, about four disaffected, outraged, um, quasi-environmentalists. They're not professional environmentalists, but they're people who know and love the landscapes of the West, who decide to take it into their own hands to start destroying Roading equipment, bridge building equipment, coal trains, coal rail lines, etc etc et cetera, across the West. And it's just a fun, it's a fun book because these are very heroic people, you know, that Abby depicts. Um, and uh, the key thing, though, and the lesson that Abby um, reiterated again and again was that if you do engage in monkey ranching and eco-sabotage, you cannot harm life. Because the whole point of environmentalism, the whole point of preservationism is to protect life. This is a true pro-life movement. We are pro-life. You know, and if you look at the record of the Earth Liberation Front and the Animal Liberation Front, these are these are um, individuals, cells, if you will, sabotage, saboteur cells, that um, have inflicted millions of dollars of damage on the industry and capital in- and uh, capitalistic interests, but harmed not a single hair on anyone's head. Well, good. More power to them. So that's my next book. My next book is about the whole history of sabotage, about the breakers of machines, the people who rise up and engage in direct action against the system, rather than just quietly sitting at home writing a letter to their congressman who will ignore it. Or signing a petition that will also be ignored, or you know, or uh, or or sending money to some nonprofit who will use it for the next lobster dinner. No, these are people who go out and take into their own hands matters.
0: One of the challenges to the law that you bring out in the book of how to extend moral recognition to animals in the environment is the fact that many of our protection laws are grounded in the idea of manifest destiny. So you, for example, you bring up the um, 1971 Act Protecting Horses that we were discussing earlier. The law sees them as, quote, living symbols of the pioneer spirit. And I was fascinated in the book, especially in the end, um, which I'm going to ask you about, but by this kind of underlying question of this land or our land. And you call the book This Land. And by that, I guess I mean to say, is it okay for it to be publicly owned at all? What does it mean to assert ownership over it, even if it's a collective ownership? Mm. Um, And I wondered in the book, because it feels to me like you, I mean, you do with grace and subtlety really grapple with that idea and and i think you stage the difficulty of of that question of the the question of sort of which side to fall on at the very end where you describe um, looking for water
2: will you read us the end christopher
1: all right here's the ending somewhere in the grand staircase that's the grand staircase escalante national monument which in Utah, southern Utah, which reappears throughout the book, which is basically one of the sort of, um, uh, uh, we, the, the, it's a site to which I return consistently throughout the book. Somewhere in the grand staircase, in the cauldron of summer, I leave the car in a ditch and strike out overland with backpack, two weeks' supply of food, a copy of Aldo's Almanac. I'm sick of driving, sick of roads, want to feel the earth underfoot and walk for as long as I can. On a terribly hot day, foolishly without enough water, I leave my base camp and head for a mesa deep in the staircase, a mesa so remote and difficult to reach that cattle have never grazed it. It is a place of relict grasses, cryptobiotic soil that's never been stomped, wildflowers that exist nowhere else preserved the way it was before Euro-American contact. The approach is long and exposed along a cobbled barren wash in a wide gorge. Many small tributary canyons feed into the gorge, twisting high-walled, flash-flood-carved canyon narrows of sweet shade where I hope to find a spring to fill my bottle. But there is no water, and the day grows hotter the sun remorseless and there's not a hint of breeze. The desert is absolutely still. And in that stillness is a suggestion of mortality. I never made it. The Mesa loomed in the distance, seeming to recede with each footfall. The sun beat my brain into a fog. My legs went soft. My vision turned murky, pulsing with a vertiginous light. And I felt like vomiting, heat sickness, I fled into one of the side canyons, stumbling into the cool of the shade, and lay down on a bed of rock, waiting for nightfall, frightened at the speed with which the sickness hit. I thought perhaps this was a message from the desert, that there are some places where we should not go, some places that have the right to be left alone.
0: I'm speechless at that, so that might be a good time to ask. You whether you have any books or films that have influenced how you think about animals and ecology?
1: uh well, Ed Abbey's Desert Solitaire, certainly. All the Leopold's Sand County Almanac. I mean, that's transformative, totally transformative. <laughs> I mean, like um, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, for sure. Books that readily come to mind. Let's see. All right, I'll I'll think of some and get back to you. <laughs>
2: Okay, well, we'll include them on our website, but we should say, too, that the, the book is really stunning. It's, it's extremely fierce. It's a remarkable piece of reporting, and it's interesting to hear the book recommendations that you give at the end because several of those are books that um, very prominent writers and magazines have compared this land to. We said in the opening that it'd be compared to Desert Solitaire by Outside Magazine, and it's been compared to Rachel Carson's writing by others as a book that really reinvigorates and re-energizes and draws attention to trying to get the public to rise up effectively in defense of our public lands. So thank you, Christopher Ketchum, for your reporting, and thank you for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for thanks for having me on. Thank
0: you, too, to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio, the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School, and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenmetalkaboutanimals.org. We where you can find out more about Christopher Ketchum and his new book, This Land. Thanks for listening.
3: I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps In the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts All around me, her voice was a-sounding This land was made for you and me there was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, it said private property, but on the backside it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, then I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving